Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, it's Robin Upsall, politics reporter for the Des Moines Register. A big question in the 2020 race has been, why Iowa? What makes this state so important in national politics? And how did we end up with such a strange system? When I moved here from Wisconsin in 2018, I had the same questions. This episode of Three Tickets will take us back to the very beginning of modern Iowa caucuses in 1972. It all started when George McGovern, a U.S. senator from South Dakota, went from relative obscurity to the Democratic nomination for the presidency. Ever since then, presidential candidates realized that spending time in Iowa, sometimes a lot of time in Iowa, can pay off on caucus night. That's why every cycle, candidates start early, come often, and stake their political fates here. And that's why I'm here keeping track of it all. The episode you're about to hear was recorded in 2015. It's hosted by Jason Noble, who was a politics reporter for the Des Moines Register. Now, Jason works on Senator Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign in Iowa, but we promise his work here went through all the objective rigor you expect from the Register. We've also made a few other edits for sound and clarity. I'll come back at the end of the episode to give you a few updates on facts, mainly information about what our sources have been up to since the episode was first recorded. I'll talk to you again soon. Enjoy the episode. There are some places across the state of Iowa where caucus's history just hangs thick in the air, like Midwestern humidity. I'm thinking of Hilton Coliseum in Ames, or Kronk's Diner out in Denison. But the history has got to be heaviest here, at the fort. The Hotel Fort Des Moines at 10th and Walnut in downtown Des Moines. The history here goes all the way back to the earliest days of the caucuses. And right down that hall uh, is where I covered Jimmy Carter at a press conference uh, in 19... I think it would have been 75. And I was the only reporter that showed up. David Yepsen can tell you all about that history. He has a thousand stories like this and probably a hundred just from the fort and the other hotels in downtown Des Moines. Um, you know, right behind us is where George Bush uh, uh, gave his uh, victory brick wall. Everybody knows is in the Fort Des Moines. Uh-huh. Um, I mentioned Jim Yepsen Carter. was a reporter and columnist at the Des Moines Register for 35 years, and he was the first person I turned to for the story of how the caucuses came to be. He covered the Iowa caucuses from 1975, when Jimmy Carter was the Georgia governor no one had ever heard of, through 2008, when Barack Obama was the Illinois senator everyone had heard of, but few believed could be president. I met him one Saturday morning at the fort, up on the second floor in the wide corridor that runs between the ballrooms. It was just us and the ambient jazz and the ghosts of politics past. 
was the perfect place for a history lesson on the Iowa Precinct Caucuses. Welcome to Three Tickets, the Des Moines Register's podcast of Iowa Caucus's history and culture. I'm Jason Noble. Coming up next on C-SPAN, we take you live to Iowa. Iowa. <laughs> Hello, Iowa. In the state of Iowa. I'm back. I love Iowa a whole lot. Tomorrow, Iowa. In this series, we're meeting the people and hearing the stories about Iowa's first-in-the-nation caucuses, the pretty amazing but sort of absurd political contests that have led off the presidential nominating process for the last five decades. This installment is all about how the caucuses came to be. We'll start out with the Epson and the big-picture history, and then go out on the trail with some of the guys who lived that history, with Jimmy Carter in 1975 and George H.W. Bush in 1979. The one-sentence history of the Iowa caucuses goes like this. It's all Jimmy Carter's fault. The unknown Southern governor came to Iowa, overperformed in the caucuses, garnered national attention, and went on to win the presidency, and thereby cemented Iowa's place at the front of the nominating process. Now, that's not wrong, but it's not the full story. They've grown. Here's Yepsen. Ever since. You know, the caucuses really started just as a result of the Chicago Democratic Convention right. in 1968. You remember 68, right? It was the chaotic convention held amid the Vietnam War after LBJ declined to run and Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Backroom dealing made Hubert Humphrey the nominee and riots broke out in the streets. Um, all that violence in the street, the party, particularly the left in the party, said, we got to open this party up. We've, we've got to... Um, get uh, more people involved, we've got to get people to participate, people feel alienated. And so they invented this system. They already had caucuses, but mm-hmm. they invented a way to have more participation. That and drive for more participation, the- achieved through a more active and meaningful primary process, played out for the first time in the 1972 campaign. But Iowa's role in it was an accident of the political calendar as much as anything. And, you know, if you're going to do the national convention and August or September, you really have to have your state convention in June or July. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to do that, you have to have your district conventions in May, and you have to have your county conventions uh, in March or April. And my gosh, we have to have these early precinct caucuses in February. Right. Um, so there you go. That's how Iowa becomes first in the nation. To make its precinct-level party meetings meaningful, though, Iowa needed a candidate to recognize there was value in campaigning here that there was something to be gained by faring well in such an early contest. Then he decided Enter George McGovern. And you really have to uh, credit uh, George McGovern and his campaign manager, Gary Hart, with deciding that we would come to Iowa and make a stand in the 1972 caucuses. And um, McGovern did. And, McGovern, and it was a senator from neighboring South Dakota, wasn't the Democratic frontrunner and he wasn't the establishment pick. He was the liberal candidate, the anti-war candidate, the young people's candidate. He only campaigned for three days in Iowa ahead of the caucuses, but he committed resources to organizing here, and on caucus night he placed third, behind one block of delegates unwilling to commit to any candidate, and another supporting Ed Muskie, the perceived frontrunner. It was a 
everybody thought Muskie was going to win. It was a cold, wintry night. A lot of party regulars stayed home. And McGovern had, you know, really kind of surprised people. Among and those watching the results were about a half dozen reporters, including one guy in particular with a really big megaphone, R.W. Johnny Apple of the New York Times. And so when the Times decided to write a story about it, that, that legitimized this thing as a contest. Apple actually wrote three stories in the days following the caucuses, including one in which he wrote that Muskie's finish was, quote, clouded by the unexpected strong showing of Senator George McGovern. Still, that three-day run in the New York Times might have been it for Iowa. But then another funny thing happened. McGovern beat Muskie for the Democratic nomination. And then McGovern went on, he won the nomination, uh, and while he lost the election, when we look back and say, hey, that thing, what happened in Iowa, uh, was important. It started something. It told us, the political community, something. McGovern's finish here, when viewed retrospectively through the lens of his surprising nomination, told candidates and reporters and all the other conjurers of conventional political wisdom that Iowa had something to tell us about nominating presidents. And that's what brings us to Jimmy Carter. Carter came to Iowa in 1975, campaigned hard, won the 76 caucuses, caught the national imagination, and ascended right up to the White House, securing Iowa's position forevermore as the cradle of presidential politics. Right? Again, it's not that simple. For one thing, Carter didn't even win the caucuses. He ran second by a wide margin to uncommitted, which means more Iowa Democrats were undecided on their presidential preference than were committed to Carter's candidacy. If you ask Michael Gardner, Jimmy Carter shares just a third of the credit for the caucus's emergence in 1976 as a meaningful event in the national nominating process. Gardner's an old newspaper man. His resume ranges from the Wall Street Journal to the Ames Tribune, with a stint as president of NBC News along the way. But in the mid-1970s, he was the editor of the Des Moines Register. Today, by the way, he's the owner of the Iowa Cubs baseball team in Des Moines. I met him at his office in the stadium just above home plate. According to Gardner, the major figures alongside Carter in the birth of the caucuses are a couple of journalists. One was Apple, and the other was Jim Flansburg, the Register's uh, political correspondent at the time. Apple and Flansburg. I, I think it was sort of a three-pronged uh, deal with Carter and Apple and Flansburg, and uh, nobody more important uh, than the other. Uh, Gardner told yeah. me that Apple, the New York Times reporter, he was, he was larger than life and 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 smarter than the rest of us, and and I think that he recognized that uh, this was a place where politicians could test themselves, uh, and that he figured it out, and he wrote a lot about it. The more he wrote about it, of course, uh, the more other people began to notice. And Flansburg, meanwhile, was, sort of was an expert on the intricacies of Iowa politics. He was the Sherpa guiding Apple and all these other Bigfoot national reporters through the political cornfields. And so then Flansburg uh, had this vast influence as well because, uh, you know, uh, at least in those days, uh, political reporters used other political reporters as sources. Uh, and so Jim was the ultimate source because he was knowledgeable, he knew the state upside down, and he was somewhere between skeptical and cynical 
uh, and he was uh, also a good companion, you know. Maybe uh, Gartner's point is a little self-serving, putting two journalists, two journalists, mind you, with whom he worked and knew personally, on the same level of importance as Jimmy Carter. But it gets at an important point. The caucuses are a media event. And in many ways, they only have as much significance as the national political media assigns to them. That's the point Gardner is making, inadvertently or not. And it's one that's widely shared. The caucuses caught on because the results they yielded first for McGovern and then for Carter provided meaningful insight into their respective nominations. But they've endured because they yield early, reportable results on the American presidential horse race and because they tell a compelling story. Those are two things that journalists love. So, that's the birth story, from conception through labor. Now let's hear from some of the guys who actually lived it. As I was putting this project together, I can't count the number of people who told me I needed to talk to Michael Morrow. I had known Morrow as Iowa's Secretary of State from 2007 to 2011. But in 1975, I heard over and over again, he was Jimmy Carter's driver. How cool is that? So I called him up, and he told me to meet him at the Cub Club, the restaurant overlooking left field at the Iowa Cubs Stadium downtown. The Cub Club is basically the clubhouse for a certain class of Des Moines old guy of which Michael Morrow is the perfect example. I got started, uh, always was interested in, in politics. Uh, I got started as a committee person. Uh, this was going clear back in the, uh, when I was in college. I went to Drake University. He was in his mid-20s in 1975 and had just moved home to Des Moines to join the family insurance and real estate business. He told me he was active in democratic politics, at least in part, for the networking opportunities. Networking, networking is important. And got a call one day that a presidential candidate was going to be coming to Des Moines. And they needed some people. Now, literally needed some people here because they're afraid nobody's going to show up. There's not much for me to add here. I'm just going to let Morrow tell his story. And I was one of the younger people there. And there was a bunch of active Democrats, activists. Uh, I say a bunch of maybe 10 or 15. And the general conversation before the candidate arrived was, we're going to be nice to this guy. Uh, we don't think he had a chance. And uh, we're going to probably support Humphrey or support, we thought Humphrey at that particular time. Shows up at the uh, hotel and gives his, his speech, his, you know, his, his stump speech. Uh, this is in August of 75, I believe. And this was state fair time. And uh, I remember most of the people there were going to be gracious and nice and then move on to the next candidate. Uh, he comes in and uh, gives a nice little presentation. I certainly was impressed. I, I'm pretty easy to impress, but... Uh, I was impressed with him. It's and it obvious the, here uh, that Mara was talking about Jimmy Carter. Yeah, he's talking about Jimmy Carter. After the speech, Carter mentions that he'd like to go out to the Iowa State Fair, inadvertently inaugurating a caucus's tradition that continues today. And we drive out to the fair, literally, it's hot, it's August. And we, we, uh, so we went over to the varied industry building, we thought we'd find some friends at the Democratic booth, and introduced ourselves, and he just began shaking hands. And during this handshaking routine, he would tell everybody, my name's Jimmy Carter, and I'm running for president of the United States. How was he received? Now, literally, I'm watching this, and they're getting no reaction. He's getting no reaction from anyone. Oh. You know, just a, a friendly Iowan saying, that's great. 
Morrow led Carter and his people around the fair for a while, and then, having some time to kill, literally just drove them around. So we had nothing to do that particular time, so we drove around Des Moines and showed him the sights. <laughs> Me not ever thinking he's going to be president, but I, you know, I'm fairly impressed with this guy. Nobody really knows who he is. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we drive him around, and about an hour and a half later, we drive him off the airport, and he flies off to Davenport. He had something going on, but I went back to work. And uh, they basically said, where you been all day long? You know, I said, hey, listen, don't bother me. I just been with the next president of the United States. I didn't know I was going to be a prophet. But he, Morrow was a committed Carter supporter after that, driving him around on subsequent visits to Des Moines and helping organize events. What he remembers most about the experience is how small and intimate it was. Campaign. He was. Carter was at the beginning uh, literally at the bottom of the heap. And uh, he, he put together a networking campaign across the state with, I, I would believe, I wasn't an insider, but, but with not very much money uh, and just going meeting people on a personal one-to-one basis. And that worked? It worked. And then and, and we had a fundraiser at our house at my parents' home uh, for him. And uh, it, was, it was a coffee. There was more coffees than there were... Gather, a big, right, huge rallies. gathering, like rallies. So, but that's what it took. That, 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 Carter placed second on caucus night, behind Uncommitted. And the press attention and the fundraising boost that resulted pushed him on through to the nomination. No and then, the presidency. The from there, but when he gets elected president, yeah. uh, uh, it, it was something. Uh, I, I was certainly impressed. And Carter didn't forget Morrow when he got there. Impressing. A lot of people get invited to the inauguration. I got invited to the inauguration. Oh, wow. Really? And uh, went. What went, walked right along the parade. He walked that route, you know. Uh-huh. It was cold day in January. Went to the inauguration. There were some great parties prior to the inauguration. Morrow got invited and, back um, again for a State really of the Union address. And here I am sitting in the White House. This is, this is a, a year a later, a year or two later. And well, what a wonderful experience. Yeah. And a third time for a White House briefing ahead of Carter's re-election bid in 1979. We actually went to the uh, briefing room there, and uh, they, uh, they brought the whole cabinet through. And I'm sitting there in the front row, and I'm, I got a friend sitting next to me, and I'm saying to myself, what am I doing here? <laughs> Morrow stuck with Carter in 1980, even as Teddy Kennedy challenged him for the nomination. And that was no small thing for an Italian Catholic from the south side of Des Moines a place where just about every family had a portrait of John F. Kennedy hanging on the wall. Well, the president called me up flat out and said, are you going to support me? I said, absolutely. Carter lost to Ronald Reagan in 1980. But Morrow's life in Iowa politics continued. He went to work for the Polk County Elections Office, worked his way up, and was ultimately elected Secretary of State in 2006. He served one term, and he's now the state labor commissioner. He recalls the whole Carter experience as a lark, a funny coincidence, something he lucked into. You know, just one of those things that happens to Iowans. There's a lot of people out there like me. I'm not a rarity. I just happen to be at the right place at the right time by accident. Really not even knowing a guy who was going to become president. Carter's story is unique because nobody's known. All right, so far I've talked pretty much exclusively about Democrats. That's because the 72 and 76 caucuses were almost entirely Democratic contests. From the Republican perspective, the one major development of the 76 campaign was the decision to hold Democratic and Republican caucuses on the same night, a calculated move to play up their significance and extract as much media coverage from them as possible. 
it began a period of inter-party cooperation, some might call it collusion, that has now lasted for decades. To get the story on what happened next, I did what many Republican candidates have done over the years. I found a couple of good country lawyers. George Wickraff and Ralph Brown got involved in politics in the late 1960s, recruited a moderate Republican into the 72 election for Iowa lieutenant governor, and by the late 70s found themselves playing major roles in the state party and on the first serious Republican caucus campaign. They're both basically retired from politics now and occupied mainly with their small-town law practices, Brown in Dallas Center and Whitgraf in Cherokee. I interviewed them together one afternoon in the Register's newsroom. Ralph Brown was the Iowa GOP executive director in 1976, and he told me that the decision to make those caucuses a test of presidential preferences was almost an afterthought. There started to be a lot of press coverage on the Democratic caucuses in 1975-76. So a few days before the caucuses, uh, the state party leadership decided, let's do a straw poll sampling. Mm -hmm. So we consulted with uh, Central Surveys in Shenandoah Public Opinion Firm on how to randomly select precincts to sample. Right. And we did a sampling of 62 precincts. We called precinct leaders right before the caucus to have them do a straw poll on the Ford-Reagan contest. No formal campaign, not a lot of media coverage, just a quick pseudoscientific survey on caucus night. Something for Johnny Apple and Jim Flansburg. And those 62 precincts reported, and so there was, if you will, Republican news that uh, Gerald Ford narrowly edged out Ronald Reagan. Uh, So that straw poll basically exactly mirrored what Iowa's vote was at the national convention. Which doesn't always happen with with caucus Right. Largely coincidental. (laughs) It was coincidental. (laughs) That second voice you heard is George Whitgraf. He wasn't too involved with GOP politics in 75 and 76, but took on a major role as the 1980 campaign grew closer. In the aftermath of 76, the significance of Iowa's place on the nominating calendar began to dawn on Republicans as well as Democrats, and none more so than George H.W. Bush. Brown and Whitgraf were drawn to Bush, and got in on the ground floor of the first serious Republican campaign of the Iowa Precinct Caucuses. It began serendipitously with a wedding. Interestingly, uh, Karl Rove was in a wedding party in Des Moines in August of 1978. And I'd known Karl before, and he was helping George H.W. Bush, and we talked about George Bush, and I told him that I was kind of interested in his candidacy. And if you know anything about the Bushes, you can probably guess what happens next. And within a week, I had one of George Bush's famous handwritten notes. Oh, wow. And a few weeks later, George Bush, in September of 78, was in Des Moines to, to speak to an annual Scottish Rite dinner. Uh-huh. And I kind of helped with that event, uh, set up a press conference, and... Uh, started the end of the year 1978, communicating with the Bush headquarters in Houston. Bush made his presidential intentions clear and left little doubt that he saw his path running through Iowa. 
It helped that Bush had a close relationship with Mary Louise Smith, Iowa's longtime Republican National Committee woman, who had succeeded him as chair of the National Party in 1974. Brown, Whitgraff, Smith, and several others got together. And uh, we decided that George Bush was who we wanted to support for president. And we decided that George should be George Bush's state chairman. Bush spoke at a party dinner in the little western Iowa town of Denison in March of 1979. And it was there that the campaign was born. We went from there. I met George Herbert Walker Bush in the uh, parking lot of Cronk's Cafe uh, late one March weekday night, whenever it was. It was pretty cold. Um, and that was the first time I had met him. But uh, And I guess he asked me if I would be the campaign chairman as a matter of formality. Kind of a done deal, just the formality. And, and yes, and so by April then, just about a month later, he began his active campaigning in Iowa as part of his presidential campaign. Wow. Candidates, by the way, still stop at Crocs. I went there with Michelle Bachman in 2011, and Ted Cruz, Rick Santorum, and Carly Fiorina dropped by in 2015. It was obvious from the start that Bush would follow the person-to-person, early and often Iowa playbook written a few years earlier by Jimmy Carter. One of the things we all felt strongly about, going back now to 1975, 76, was that if George Bush was going to do this, being unknown or an asterisk, as we used to say in the, in the polling, um, he had to commit to uh, a very active campaign a la Jimmy Carter. And, and he did. And, and that's the kind of campaign he had, although... If Having met and Denison in March, one month later, George and Barbara Bush spent two days in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Uh, George and Barbara Bush together were in eight counties in those two days. Barbara Bush had a separate schedule. Uh, another six counties. So in those two days in April of 1979, George and Barbara Bush were in 14 Iowa counties, meeting Republicans. Right. Yeah. Yes. We don't think that Barbara Bush had ever eaten a McDonald's hamburger before 1979. <laughs> <laughs> at least that, that was the folklore at the time. And I think it's very possibly true. And as Barbara Bush was in Waterloo sometime in the fall of 1979 to open the George Bush headquarters, uh, she arrived early and kind of lost track of her, and they realized that she was in out front. She'd gone next door to borrow a broom and was out sweeping the sidewalk so that everything was all neat for the headquarters <laughs> opening. Wow. That's the kind of campaign it was. Yepsen recalls jumping in the back seat of a car with Bush and riding along with him from stop to stop. If that happens at all today, it only happens after days of tense negotiations with campaign staff at some headquarters a thousand miles away. By 1979, it seems that everyone had recognized the caucuses as the formal start of the presidential campaign. But they were still pretty informal. And these were small gatherings. Now the candidates here, we'll talk about 2015, their first appearances, they get crowds of 100, 200, 300, it's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, back in 1979, if you had a crowd of maybe 30, 40, 50, you thought you were doing real well and bootstrapped particularly off party events. Working but, the but grassroots went a long way for Bush. But even more important was the fact that his biggest rival was refusing to even show up. After narrowly losing to Gerald Ford for the Republican nomination in 1976, Ronald Reagan came into the 1980 cycle as the leader of the pack and he campaigned that way. He barely showed his face in Iowa, refused to participate in debates, 
and hardly even acknowledged his opponents. A 1979 political cartoon by Register cartoonist Frank Miller showed Reagan's Iowa campaign as a ragged canvas tent with a vulture perched on top. I would say from that time in, in September of 1978, he wasn't in Iowa again until January of 1980. Maybe in December of 79. December 79, but, January of 80, yeah. He, he essentially gave the field to George Bush. There were lots of other candidates, but, right. but obviously the big dog candidate was Ronald Reagan, yeah. and, and he was gone for more than a year. In the absence of the big dog, Bush won six informal straw polls held at party events and fundraisers over the course of 1979. That includes the very first Ames straw poll at Hilton Coliseum, the event that in later cycles became an unparalleled political carnival. But then, of course, All right, guys, later, take us to caucus night. At my own precinct caucus in Dallas Center, I saw all these people come into the caucus site I did not know. My first thought was the Reagan people has reached out and has found people that we didn't know who they were and we're getting trumped. And as the straw ballots were being counted, and instead of Reagan, Reagan, it was Bush, Bush, Bush. And George Bush won my precinct caucus better than two to one. That was what was starting to happen across the state of Iowa. And over 100,000 people showed up. Bush won. Just that whole experience of 1980 is what stands out for me that this phenomenon happened of incredible numbers that we did not really anticipate turned out and the efforts that we'd made contacting people word of mouth person to person contacted people I've met George Bush I like George Bush George Bush won the caucus that night and that that was an incredible evening the night wasn't without drama though Reagan was the national frontrunner, after all, and he stepped up his efforts in the final weeks in Iowa. The final statewide tally was extremely close, and complicating matters was the fact that party officials tried to tabulate the results using a very early computer system, a system set up at the Hotel Fort Des Moines, but which relied on results telephoned into the hotel from 2,500-plus caucus precincts all across the state. The system failed, and party officials had to hastily count up the numbers by hand. Bush won by about 2,000 votes and two percentage points, a result not entirely trusted by partisan and nonpartisan observers alike. Despite Bush's bounce coming out of Iowa, Reagan won the New Hampshire primary and ultimately clinched the nomination. But he made George H.W. Bush his vice president, and they defeated Jimmy Carter in November. How important, I asked Brown and Whitgraff, was that early Iowa victory to Bush's fortunes later on? There, there are different spins to put on George Bush's success. Yeah. I, I guess I would like to think, Ralph would probably like to think, most of us who were active Bush supporters in that period would like to think that that, that was the beginning of his rise and, and was critical to his selection after Gerald Ford bowed out, to his selection in Detroit as the Republican vice presidential nominee. There's a school... I think George Bush himself had said that once he was in the White House, that without Iowa, he could not have gotten where he ended up. So that's the story. 
for Democrats and for Republicans, of how the caucuses came to be. Before I go, though, this seems like an appropriate place to reflect a little bit on the role the caucuses play in the larger nomination process. David Yepsen has a succinct explanation, which draws on the same two caucus campaigns that we've been talking about, 1976 and 1980. Well, there's two roles I think it plays. One is uh, a slingshot. It can rocket you out of obscurity uh, to uh, a position, either the nomination or the presidency or, or uh, a prominent position in the party. Car- Carter exemplifies this, but so too does George H.W. Bush. And so does Gary Hart in 1984, Mike Huckabee in 2008, and of course Barack Obama in 2008. So there's, the, there's the, that slingshot effect. There's also the winnow the field. Howard Baker said in 1980, uh, he finished third, uh, Iowa winnows the field and I've been winnowed in. The winnowing function is arguably the more important of the two, and the one at which Iowa has proven adept year after year. Now, we almost certainly won't know who the nominee is on the morning after the Iowa caucuses, but we can probably rule out a whole bunch of wannabes, and there's definitely some value in that. So, that's the caucuses. Easy, right? Candidates come to Iowa, get a little media attention, and move along to other states. No! What are we, a primary state? It's way more fun than that. In the next episode, we're going to look at how caucus night actually works for Democrats and Republicans. We're also going to look at the ways the whole thing has gone horribly wrong. A few notes before we end the podcast. This was recorded in 2015, leading up to the 2016 Iowa caucuses, which means a few things have changed around the state. The Hotel Fort Des Moines was closed for renovations in fall of 2015, and renovations were ongoing as of fall 2019. Michael Morrow retired as state labor commissioner in 2019 after 35 years in Iowa politics amid controversy over mistreatment of employees. The Republican Party of Iowa decided to not hold an Ames straw poll in 2015, so that tradition ended in 2011. Before we end, I want to make sure I thank everyone who helped us with this episode of Three Tickets. Thank you first and foremost to Katie Aiken, the producer of this episode. Thank you also to Rachel Stassenberger, politics editor at the Des Moines Register, Paige Windsor, our news director, and Carol Hunter, the paper's executive editor. 